0: from 1979 to today.
1: This is episode 2.52, We'll Meet Again, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and here to answer your questions.
0: And I'm Nina. I was new to Zeta, not anymore, and I am excited to move on to the next series. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 326 Patrons and Subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Steven S, Taktidek, Alex VP, and V Kalsen. MSB would not be possible without your support. This is the last episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown Season 2, and we are now on hiatus as we prepare for Season 3. That means there will be no regular episodes of the podcast until we return on August 8th. However, we will still release our usual patron-exclusive bonus content. If you are all caught up and find yourself in need of an MSB fix during the hiatus, several of our patron tiers include bonus content, two seasons worth of it. Lots of fun stuff in there and we highly recommend you check it out. This is our final update from New York for a while. I can honestly say, I don't know what's going to happen in the next month. Things in New York are much better than they've been in a long time, just as things are getting particularly bad in other parts of the United States. Protests continue around the country, although they're getting very little news coverage now. All we can say is keep safe, keep healthy, and keep fighting the good fight. We will be doing the same.
1: We asked you to submit your comments, questions, takes, thoughts, etc. about Zeta, and we got quite a few. So we have a list in front of us of all of your questions, and we're going to go through as many as we can. Thank you, by the way, to almost all of you for submitting questions that didn't contain any spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to start with uh, the more specific questions, and then we'll move into more general questions about Zeta, and then the most general questions about Gundam as a whole and Tomino's work. The first question I want to address comes from actually a whole lot of people who emailed, messaged, and Twitter DM'd me after last week's podcast came out when I talked about the O and its extremely phallic subarm. They all messaged to point out, quite correctly, that the O actually has two subarms coming out of its crotch zone, and to ask whether I thought that changed my analysis of the O's arm and its significance, and whether it added anything. And the short answer is, I don't think it changes the analysis, because frankly, when you watch the show, in which they only deploy one Mm subarm, it's animated, it's drawn in a way to make it very clear what they're doing. It uh, looks like a large articulated penis with glowing energy shooting out of the tip.
0: This feels a little bit like the biosensor in that apparently you need some outside of the show meta-knowledge to even know that there is an additional arm.
1: Yeah, this additional meta-knowledge comes from concept art, um, you know magazine articles, and, of course, Gunpla. Nina did a little bit of additional research about the significance of four and four arms in various religions and cultures. But before she gets into that heady intellectual discourse about the significance of four, I just want to say that, in a way, the existence of an additional arm actually reinforces my point for two reasons. The first one is, given the way it's depicted in the show— we can be certain that the animators for Zeta Gundam looked at the O's two subarms, and they thought to themselves, how can we depict this in a way that makes it look even more phallic? They chose the angles, they chose the shots, they chose to use only one arm, all to create this overall impression. The second point I would make is that if we view the subarm or subarms as a representation of Sirocco's sexuality in mobile suit form, well, then it makes perfect sense that he would have more than one uh, because he has clearly never intended to limit himself to anything like monogamy.
0: So as Tom mentioned, I did a, a little research to try and find out about the significance of four arms specifically, but it turns out the number four is sort of magical for humans. There's this thing that humans and a lot of other animals can do called subitization, which is when you look at objects and without counting them, you know how many there are. And we can only reliably do this up to four objects. So this is when you look at something on a table and you say, oh, there are three forks. You didn't count one, two, three. You just looked at them and you knew. Uh, And the number four shows up across (laughs) religions as something of significance. In Buddhism, you have four noble truths, four heavenly kings, four divine abidings, four stages of enlightenment. In Christianity, there are four gospels and four horsemen of the apocalypse. In Judaism, uh, particularly for Passover, there are a lot of symbols that are around four. There are four questions to be asked, four cups of wine to drink, four sons to be dealt with.
1: Also in Judaism, there's the tetragrammaton, which is the way you write the name of God with four characters.
0: In Hinduism, a lot of deities are portrayed with four arms. There are four primary castes in society. The god Brahma has four faces. There are four stages of life. In Islam, there are four archangels, four books, four Rashidun, or rightly guided caliphs. In Taoism, there are four mythological creatures that are of great significance. The compass has four cardinal directions. Humans like the number four (laughs) is what I'm getting at. Uh, Various sources that are not, I don't know how reliable they are or how well sourced they are, talk about how the four arms of Hindu deities are an expression of greater power than humans because we only have the two arms. The number four also gives us a sense of completeness. I think probably because of the four cardinal directions, four feels like, ah, I have covered the whole thing.
1: The four corners of the earth.
0: Four is all. Four is everything. And I think giving any mobile suit four arms is going to invoke that same sense of power and completeness. Nobody entirely knows why we like four or why we can subitize up to four, but not really beyond it. But it's interesting.
1: I'm trying to think now if any other mobile suit we've encountered so far has had more than two arms.
0: Didn't one of them have three arms?
1: Do you remember which one?
0: I could have sworn somebody had a third arm, but...
1: We can't remember if any other mobile suits have had a third or fourth arms. We don't think so. So if you can think of any, let us know. But for the moment, I'm going to say the O is the first mobile suit to deploy additional arms.
0: While we are discussing the O... Listener Brian H. also wrote in to ask us if we thought the O's name might also be invoking the Alpha and Omega, which I believe comes from Greek as a name for God, the beginning and the end.
1: Right. The entirety. So the answer is yes, but in kind of an indirect way, because saying God is the Alpha and the Omega is another way of saying God is a circle. God is the beginning and the end. God is the snake that eats its own tail.
0: Russell B. wrote in to reaffirm that Camille is a good boy, which prompted a certain amount of soul searching on my part (laughs) about my feelings about Camille throughout the series.
1: You said recently that you had come around on him a little bit. Do you want to talk about that?
0: I do. However, (laughs) here's my problem. I started to like Camille much more, but I feel somewhat guilty about my reasons for that. I think I parallel Fa in a lot of ways. Fa gets much less frustrated with Camille when he starts exhibiting more responsibility and more acceptance of the situation he's in. I think those things also made me like him more. But on a logical level, I know that he shouldn't have to. He shouldn't be in this situation to begin with, and we shouldn't be requiring a 17-year-old to act like a grown-up in order to like him
1: you know the problem with this nina you and i we're the enemy i know we're adults. we're adults yep
0: and as i freely acknowledged early on many of the things that i disliked about camille were just teen things you know he was impulsive and kind of bratty and self-centered and didn't want to give up his childhood and all of that is totally normal and acceptable teen stuff uh and is not in and of itself bad that's just not a protagonist that I'm terribly interested in at my time of life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been watching stories about teens my whole life, and I'm in my 30s now and would like, <laughs> and would like some stories about grown-ups. I don't <laughs> sure.
1: It makes him kind of a frustrating protagonist because those are all things that make him less uh, effective at acting and changing the status quo, which is really what his job is as the protagonist.
0: So... I think Camille is as good as he can be under the circumstances. I sympathize with him more, but I'm a little disgusted with myself about it. Uh, So Zita's always going to be a bit of a complicated one for me, feelings-wise.
1: Well, Camille is a young kid living in a hostile world who was forced to grow up faster than he should have been and who was forced to... uh, change himself until he was acceptable to this violent and oppressive world that he lives in. And, you know, that's kind of all of us. We all have to do that to get by in the world that we live in today.
0: In a very broad art reflects the world sense, this is so much of why adults frequently don't like teens and don't get along with teens. They're Black and white thinking at times, their idealism, reminds us of all the compromises we've made, and we don't necessarily like it. We feel judged by them. We are judged by them.
1: Speaking of the ways that Camille is forced to adapt himself to this hostile world, listener Jessica A. wrote in to suggest that there's a parallel between Jared and Camille in the way that both of them are forced to abandon their humanity in exchange for power. And I think this is right on. We talked about how Jared's progression of mobile suits from more human to less human shows his own progression, his growing monstrous nature as he pursues power to defeat Camille. Camille is also pursuing power. uh, And although he only has the one mobile suit upgrade, Camille does also, over the course of the show, change very dramatically in order to obtain the power necessary to change the world to his own great detriment in the end.
0: And we see him go through these phases of sort of unnatural detachment to somewhat unnatural for humans acceptance. Jessica also made the point that when Camille kills Sirocco, he is not in the Zeta's humanoid form. He is in the Zeta's wave rider form.
1: Yes. While Zeta may have been forced to incorporate transformable mobile weapons, mobile suits, mobile armors, because of the trend in Mecha of the time started by Macross, Zeta does manage to weave them into its own storyline and into its themes in ways that are very meaningful. Camille's use of the transformable Zeta Gundam reflects his own attempts to transform himself in order to accommodate the world uh, and to better fit into Ayug. He uses the wave Rider form frequently to run away from combat, to attempt to escape but ultimately, when he faces Sirocco in the final battle, it's only when he throws away his weapons and transforms into the Wave Rider that he is able to break through Soroko's overwhelming battle aura. And it's when he throws away his humanity and accepts this machine nature that he's able to do that. On the other hand, when Jared's mobile suits transform into mobile armors, they transform into monsters, insects terrifying creatures. The Zeta is a plane. The Zeta transforms from a warrior into a vehicle.
0: Well, Camille's transformation is about detachment, and so having him turn into an object makes more sense. Jared's transformation is about obsession, (laughs) and so turning into a monster makes more sense.
1: It's interesting you should mention obsession in the transformation context for Jared, because when I talked about gadflies, Many episodes back, when we were talking about the Gabflay, uh, one of their noteworthy characteristics is how persistently annoying they are.
0: That's Jared. <laughs>
1: Camille also goes through a transformation from the Mark II to the Zeta during the course of the show. Now, the reason behind this is originally a production logistics issue. They simply had not gotten the Zeta Gundam's final design approved in time for the start of the show, and so they decided to have Camille upgrade halfway through. But again, it does show Camille's transformation from the much more human, more original Gundam-like Mark II to the Zeta. And I think the most significant change between those two besides the transformation is that the Zeta, if you look at its face, it looks angry. The Zeta looks like a ball of rage and it has no mouth. This coincides pretty neatly with when Camille stops talking back so much. He is containing all of the rage, all of the emotions within himself.
0: Several listeners, notably Brett A. and Logan, wanted us to talk a bit about Char's arc through Zeta and his development Brett in particular made the point that he thinks Char is trying to be a good person and failing. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's true. But I think the extent of his failures and the degree to which they really feel like things that he could do something about and just doesn't uh, almost makes it worse. (laughs) 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 He never once cares for the orphans that he adopted and brought onto this warship. He doesn't ask after them. He doesn't care for them. He doesn't check on them. Nothing.
1: After Char adopts them, they actually have more positive interactions with Wong Lee than they do with Quatro.
0: He appears to accept his leadership role when he lets Ayug make him a figurehead, when he gives the speech, but we know he hasn't really because he still resents and resists ever being put in a position to make meaningful decisions. As we talked about last episode, he is all about avoiding doing anything unless it's a situation where he has to do something.
1: I actually disagree with you. I don't think Shar is trying to be a good person. I don't think Shar thinks he's a good person. I think Shar believes deep down that he is a bad person, but he is trying to do either good or as little harm as possible. I think that's the motivation.
0: That does make sense. A certain amount of self-loathing. I think particularly with regards to his obvious emotional reactions after interacting with Minerva,
1: Yeah, that's where he really feels like he's just gets hit by the weight of his like failures in the past and it just crushes him for a moment. I do think he's trying to do good or trying not to do bad. And I think that's the motivation behind so much of his reluctance, so much of his unwillingness to act, because he believes he is a bad person and everything he touches will go wrong.
0: But if he really believes that he is so bad and that he shouldn't be involved in any of this at all, why doesn't he just disappear? He probably could if he wanted to.
1: What is Quattro Bagina except an attempt to disappear into the battlefield?
0: But not into the battlefield. That's the problem. He didn't have to join Ayug. You don't think he could just, like, become a burger flipper at McDaniel and, like... (laughs)
1: No, he needs to fight. And I think (laughs) maybe, possibly, I'm not sure that I'm willing to go this far, but I'm going to throw it out there. He might be looking to die on the battlefield.
0: I think that's probably true.
1: He keeps getting put in these situations where he's forced by everybody around him and all of their expectations into choosing between two bad options, and he... To his credit, he is trying to do the better thing. He just doesn't know what that is. I think his instincts are bad. And he's listening too much to what everybody else expects from him.
0: I just think he's he's let himself be controlled by his need to fight. Because it would have been very easy for him to not be a part of this at all if that was what he really wanted. But he can't have it both ways. He can't be here and... Somehow not responsible.
1: <laughs> if he could have maintained the fiction that he was just Quattro Bagina, I think things would have played out very differently for him. Unfortunately, he could not keep the secret, and frankly, Ayug needed somebody like Shar. Ayug needed a figurehead. Ayug needed somebody who could pull them together after Blex's death, and somebody who could give that speech at Dakar to rally support for them. If Shar hadn't done that, Who knows what would have happened, but it does put him on a path that he never wanted to walk. Speaking of which, Rose wrote in to ask about Sela. Now, a long time ago in the podcast, we talked about her lack of presence in the show, how it was the result of the voice actor not being available. But Rose asks, now that we've reached the end of the show, what role do we think Sela could have played if she was available, and would that have improved the show?
0: there was some discussion that the role of Beltorchka Irma was a stand-in for Sela. That's why Beltorchka's character exists. But at this point, I sort of like the headcanon that Sayla looked around at all her former crewmates, who were all still fighting the war and had never entirely stopped, and said, you know what? No, (laughs) I'm done. I'm gonna go do something else, and I want no part of this. And with that headcanon that I have created for her, <laughs> it makes much more sense for some young up-and-coming soldier to be the one pressuring Amaro to get back in it, because a sailor who is checked out probably doesn't want Amaro to keep doing this either. And I'm not sure it necessarily would have added value to the show to have one more white-based crew member who is still fighting the war.
1: Yeah. I ended up liking the character of Beltorska quite a bit, especially by the end of the Day of Dakar. So I do feel like simply replacing her with Sayla would not really add much to the show. It might also be bad for Sayla as a character. I'm not convinced that Zeta would have let Sayla be Sela.
0: Also, now that I'm thinking about it, personality-wise, there's a lot of overlap between Sayla and Emma, Mm. that same kind of, like, strictness and harshness. And, you know, what does it add to have one more person <laughs> in that role here? I don't think it really does add anything.
1: I agree. Now, if this show had been more focused on Amaro, or even if it had been more focused on Quattro and his internal development, uh, I could see Sela being interesting in those contexts.
0: Yeah, if it were more... Of a sequel to First Gundam in that its focus was on the characters of First Gundam and how they have changed since the war, how growing up during the war affected them as adults, then having her in there as another perspective would have been fantastic. As it stands, I think they probably devoted a little too much time to characters from First Gundam in Zeta in ways that did not sort of further the Zeta storyline.
1: It's funny you should mention that because the next question I wanted to mention comes from John E., and he asks, what characters did we think had unresolved stories at the end of Zeta? He specifically mentions whatever happened to Fa's parents who were captured by the Titans. And the answer is, I don't know, no idea. The show forgets about them as soon as it mentions it.
0: My position is that Zeta is an unresolved story. And so (laughs) all
1: of them, everybody. Uh, If we're talking about the characters with unresolved stories, we have to make a distinction between the characters whose stories are unresolved because they got killed off with no satisfying character resolutions versus the characters whose stories are unresolved because they simply got forgotten about in the course of the story. Uh, And that latter group includes people like, I don't know, Stephanie Luo, Mirai, the whole Earth cast, really as well as ambiguously dead Yazan, Namikar Cornell, Gates Kappa, all of those civilians on Green Oasis from the first episode that Titans MP Matosh, like, it's a long list. And this isn't necessarily bad. Making the world incomplete by not tying up all of these loose ends does help to make the world feel bigger, realer, more lived in, And, and there's a lot of benefit to that.
0: This gets to the core of some of my feelings about Zeta as a whole. But to me, the ending, if you don't know that it gets a sequel pretty much immediately, Tom told me Double Zeta started airing all of a week later. But if you didn't know that, the ending is very nihilistic. By not telling us who won, by not telling us what happens to the government... The story becomes entirely about the pointlessness of war and in some ways treats all of these ideological conflicts as inconsequential, like, oh, it's all the same and it doesn't matter, which I disagree with (laughs) pretty strongly. Yes, the loss of life and the destruction is horrible and does feel pointless, but whether or not the Titans are still around to harass the people of space Whether or not the zombies are back in power, to me, that matters. (laughs) And Zeta treats it as if it doesn't.
1: Yeah, I think you really have to view Zeta as only the first half of the true Zeta story, which is Zeta and Double Zeta. Of course, we haven't watched Double Zeta yet, so I can't talk about it or how it does or doesn't resolve these storylines but we'll find out over the course of the next year. Let's talk now about Zeta as a series as a whole and address those questions. Stephen B. wrote in to ask, in light of the fact that Zeta Sequel is called Double Zeta, just what does Zeta mean anyway? What was the sign of Zeta? Was it just a fancy looking two? This is a really good question. And there are a couple of different possible answers. Tomino has actually given an answer, but it's Tomino, we don't trust him. So I'm going to go through (laughs) all of them. Answer one from Tomino, he has said that this was going to be the final last Gundam series. There would be no more Gundam after this. So Z as the last letter of the Latin alphabet makes sense to convey the finality of this Gundam show. It didn't work out the way he wanted, but that was his intention. The second possibility is that Stephen B. is exactly correct. The Z is actually a stylized 2. We know that during the production of Zeta, some people on the production staff referred to it as Gundam 2. This would then make Gundam Double Zeta actually Gundam Zeta 2, which makes sense because we know that people involved in the production of Double Zeta were referring to it as Zeta Gundam Part 2.
0: Every time they refer to the sign of Zeta, though, I think of the age of Aquarius Mm. and again, new age religions uh, and how that connects to new typism within the Gundam universe. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but that's where my brain goes immediately every time anybody says sign of Zeta.
1: (laughs) And then the third possibility, Zeta is the sixth letter of the Greek alphabet. And Zeta Gundam was made six years after First Gundam.
0: All very compelling theories.
1: And it could be some combination of the three.
0: A couple of you wrote in to us to talk about uh, the issue of Zeta's narrative structure, which is something we touched on at a couple of points, but uh, Brian H. mentioned that to him it felt like two shows stitched together, uh, one show before Haman and one show after Listener Charlie Weeks felt like the first 20 episodes or so were fairly cohesive and that after that it loses the thread somewhat. And listener Brian S. felt that the Earth arc was too long, while the last eight episodes or so felt like 10 to 12 episodes worth of content rushed (laughs) through right at the end.
1: I agree with that completely.
0: Yeah. (laughs) The question being, is this because of outside factors? Or was it just a badly planned series? You know, did Tomino lose interest? We mentioned Double Zeta started airing a week after Zeta finished. So did they lose some of the core team who had already moved on to working on Double Zeta?
1: And we also mentioned that if you look at the credits for who is uh, writing these episodes, who's planning them out, Tomino is listed on quite a few episodes in the first half of the series and almost no episodes in the second half of the series. I think none at all after like episode 30 or something. That does suggest he had less of a role in planning out the story, possibly that there was no uh, single person in charge of the story. Jess S. wrote in suggesting that part of the problem with the Zeta story might just be the clash between what is being depicted, which is essentially a post-wartime era of almost peace with small-scale, ideologically-driven civil wars, rather than the kind of big, massive national wars that had preceded it. Um, And so it's essentially a story about peacetime being told with warlike characters fighting a kind of war as the main focal point, and that that might be part of the problem. I do think there's something to that. Uh, Ryan S. suggests that it might be because this is about interrogating First Gundam and tearing apart its legacy, uh, and so you end up with a story that is a little bit disjointed because the focus is on undermining that other story rather than on telling a good story.
0: I disagree. For me, both... Jess and Ryan's points are well worth talking about in the context of what sort of story is Zeta trying to tell. But when I think about the disjointed nature of the narrative in parts of Zeta, I wonder about process.
1: That's my instinct, too. To me, it feels like a story where two or three different people were all pulling in different directions.
0: There's sort of an old saw about writers and that some writers have the entire thing planned out, the bones of it, before they really begin. They know what the beats are going to be, they know how it's going to begin, you know, ascend, complicate, and end, before they start really writing and fleshing out the detail. And there are writers who, on the other hand, are kind of driven by their characters, and they're writing about people in situations reacting in ways that feel natural to those characters' development, but without, strictly speaking, knowing how is this situation going to resolve or even where is this situation going to go. And Zeta feels like the latter kind of story, as if nobody sat down ahead of time and said, okay, here are what all the story beats are going to be. Here are all of the important events that need to happen and who's involved with them. And then giving it to the writing team and saying, okay, now flesh out everything in the middle.
1: I do get that sense of a lack of forethought, though, especially through some characters like Four and Rosamia.
0: Because of the repetition?
1: The repetition. And when Rosamia shows up later on in the show and goes through her whole, like, mental reversion phase, her problems with her memory, uh, her attachment to Camille... All of that feels like stuff that could have and maybe should have been done with the four character. And it feels to me like a situation where the writers decided to kill four off and then later realized, oh no, we have the best idea for that character, but now we can't use it because we already killed her. Well, I guess we'd better pick some other character and fill her in.
0: Except they had already introduced Rosamia much earlier. She was one of those characters, though, who felt a little unimportant. That's not quite the word I want, but they spend all this time on her and showing us how scarred she is and that she's a cyber new type. And then she disappears for episodes and episodes. (laughs) Earlier you brought up Orion's comment about Zeta as kind of a a repudiation (laughs) of so many things that uh, people took out of First Gundam. And this sense that Tomino maybe (laughs) feels people missed the point (laughs) and did not understand his work and that he's trying to make the point more clearly in Zeta. Uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly.
1: See, I think he might actually just be trying to punish people. (laughs) I think he's mad that they didn't get his point the first time around. And now he's just like hurting his characters to hurt them.
0: This point really gets at one of the reasons that I think Gundam is so interesting to study and to talk about, because really... Every Gundam series is commenting on, riffing on, you know, either celebrating or repudiating previous shows before it. It's at the very heart of franchises that they cannot help but be reactions in some way or another to the parts of the franchise that precede them. This is true of any franchise ever. (laughs) Of course, you could say it's true of all art and all human endeavor, but it's easier to look at within franchises.
1: (laughs) And I also want to address uh, something from Jess S's comment about Zeta and the time period that it's referencing and how it's not really referencing any particular war. I do think that's true. I have spent a lot of time trying to identify what particular war, if any, Zeta Gundam is referencing, and after all of that, I am pretty convinced it's not any one particular period. It's an amalgamation of many different ones. Tomino has said in interviews that he is not a very creative person, he takes all of his ideas from history, and that he's not even very good at hiding them, so that his inspirations are always totally obvious, which... I really feel like he's mocking me specifically when he says that. (laughs) After First Gundam, uh, it's a lot harder to figure out what exactly he's riffing on. Not to spoil anything, though, I do think Tomino is going to lean more and more into uh, this post-World War II, late 20th century era of ideological conflicts and civil wars.
0: I agreed with Jess's comment that some of what we're seeing, the ideological conflict, is meant to reflect sort of post-occupation Japan politics and the different parties and the conflict between them. I suppose I disagree with the distinction between peacetime and wartime because there was quite a lot of violent conflict in Japan in this period. A lot of you know student demonstrations, a lot of violence from police and far right and far left groups Uh not war per se, you know, but I guess I I don't find it a meaningful distinction to talk about this being a peacetime conflict when there were so many conflicts that were perhaps never called war, but were still quite violent and all-consuming for the people involved in them.
1: And of course, while Japan has not been directly involved in a war since World War II, uh, it was very much involved in U.S. wars in Asia the Korean War, the Vietnam War.
0: As we've discussed, there is a a sort of post-colonial vibe that is not accounted for by Japan's internal politics, with the exception perhaps of Okinawa, which incidentally stayed under American control for longer than the rest of Japan.
1: If we're talking about Japan and its colonial relations after World War II, we should also address, of course, Hokkaido and the Ainu.
0: The Ainu, who... Only this year have been recognized as the indigenous population of Hokkaido.
1: feels like that sort of thing should have happened earlier. Yeah. Indeed, I think the high-handed, haughty relationship between the Titans and the regular Federation forces could reflect the relationship between the United States and Japan in the late 20th century.
0: Something that Brian S. wrote to us also made me think of the United States. Uh, He mentioned... That through Zeta, we see the quote-unquote good faction of the Federation go bad, right? Here's the thing, though, about the Federation. The Rot has always been there. We generally acknowledge them to be the right side of things in First Gundam, but they've always been abusive. They've always been dismissive. They've always been elitist. And that, to me... <laughs> Uh, points to so many of these post-war conflicts and how after World War II is over, it's like, well, you're still colonial powers, you're still enforcing your own supremacy.
1: And when empires start to lose control, when they are weakened, as, for instance, after a cataclysmic war, that's often when they get more brutal, more violent. When the violence that they have always inflicted on subject peoples comes home. Toby F. wrote in to ask whether there were compilation movies for Zeta in the same way that there were for first Gundam, and the answer is yes, kind of, but they didn't come out until around 2005 as a celebration for the 20th anniversary of Zeta Gundam, and they make a lot of changes, so consistent with our plan for the podcast, we are going to cover those as though they were a new project when we get to 2005.
0: A couple of you wrote in to talk about Gundam canon and alternate timelines. Chris S. wrote about how in certain fandoms, for example, Evangelion, there's sort of an accepted hierarchy of canonicity, but that there's no such consensus in Gundam uh, beyond the idea that anything animated is canonical. He wanted to know, does Tom have a standard for deciding uh, which non-animated works (laughs) are canon? (laughs) And if not, uh, is that Productive or worthwhile to create a, an internally consistent timeline.
1: So I'm going to say I think if this is something that entertains you and uh, if you enjoy spending your brain power figuring out questions like this, absolutely go for it. It's uh, it's a fun diversion. I don't think it's particularly worthwhile though. If it's not something that you really enjoy, don't bother. There's so much Gundam material out there, and actually only a tiny fraction of it is available in English. So, ultimately, I think the deciding factor for you personally should just be whether you like it or not. Is it good? Do you like it? But if you're trying to form an idea of an objective Gundam canon outside of just what's animated, and remember, just what's animated includes the things that conflict with each other, so the idea of trying to create a logical, internally consistent canon is just doomed from the beginning. But again, if you're trying to come up with some sort of objective standard, I think the best one to go with is, does this work appear in other Gundam works outside of itself? And what is the profile of those secondary works? So for instance, the Crossbone Gundam manga series appears in the Super Robot Wars series of video games. The Super Robot Wars series of video games is relatively high profile. So that gives Crossbone Gundam some additional points. Then you get something like the Gundam G-Genesis SD Strategy Tactics games. And those include side projects like the video game Rise from the Ashes. Uh, Those also can be considered a little bit closer to canonical. If you want to. Again, this is entirely up to you. You shouldn't feel restrained by the canon at all.
0: And then Nezfan13 Wanted Tom's opinion on alternate timelines presented in Girin's Greed. Uh, they mentioned some specific ones, such as a timeline in which Shar drops his disguise entirely and leads his own New Zion army as Kasval Rem Dekun, rightful heir of Zion. There's also a campaign in which Garma or sometimes Dozel break off from Girin's command and form their own factions. Also, most importantly, Garma grows out his hair and ties it in a ponytail, and it's cute. <laughs>
1: Um, I love these what-if storylines, both in Ghirin's Greed and in a couple of other games. I think in Dynasty Warriors Gundam 2, uh, there was a mechanic where you could, if you played particularly well and did some secret objectives, you could alter the course of history. I love when you can do that. Ghirin's Greed in particular has some great ones. And while I do respect uh, Garma Lives and It's Cute... The best Giren's Greed alternate timeline faction that doesn't contain any spoilers is Temre's Army, which is where Temre gathers all of the engineers to form his own army. What? It's just a whole bunch of bad dads and genius jerks teaming up to be the absolute worst.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Ghost Lightning asked us when was the first time that Tomino was called Kill'em All, Tomino. Uh, was it an American thing, or was he also called that in the Japanese press? Uh, and is this a fair epithet, <laughs> given how many of the character deaths weren't written by him?
1: Well, first of all, it does come from the Japanese fandom originally. Uh, I believe Tomino has said it goes all the way back to Zambot 3, although his name in Japanese is Minagoroshi Tomino.
0: Which is kill them all, <laughs> murder I, them all.
1: <laughs> I was going to say I prefer the translation everyone murderer Tomino.
0: You like the literal translation, Tom?
1: I think it works here, Nina. I think it's got good (laughs) mouthfeel. As for whether or not it's a fair epithet, I think it is. Even if he isn't the one who individually wrote all of these characters, he did oversee the stories. They are his. And he does have a pattern that is quite distinctive. He stands out from other Japanese directors, especially of his era, in terms of his tendency to kill everyone.
0: It feels very similar to TV writing styles now. I would also say that even if Tomino himself didn't write all of these deaths, he does set the tone for the show. And he does have this established reputation before Zeta even begins, And so if the tone of the show is lots of pointless death, no one is safe, that gives the writers license to write it in that way that they, I assume, would not have had if Tomino was much more careful about who dies in a series and maybe only had one or two really big deaths instead of no one is safe.
1: It's also worth mentioning, and you got at this when you said no one is safe, it's not just that Tomino kills lots of characters. It's that Tomino will kill any character. Tomino is happy to kill the protagonist. This is a thing he does repeatedly, especially in his novels where he is actually in complete control of what happens. Tomino likes to kill every different kind of character. So it's not that everyone will die, but anybody could. So we're done. We finished Zeta, which, according to Tomino, is the last Gundam that will ever be made. Ha ha. At this point, we have seen First Gundam and Zeta. So looking at the two of them side by side, I don't think I even really need to ask this, but which did you prefer?
0: First Gundam.
1: Okay. Zeta is a lot um, darker than First Gundam. It's a lot more nihilistic in its outlook, especially in its ending. And um, I think the other thing about Zeta is it's much more ambitious than First Gundam was. Would you agree with that?
0: I'm not sure that I do. Ambitious, how? I think
1: Zeta was trying to tell a much more complex story with a much larger number of characters um, who all fit less into broad archetypical character profiles and have a little bit more nuance to them. They're also um, much less likable characters, and we can uh, argue about whether or not that was a good idea, but I think it was definitely an ambitious one to tell a story this large and this complicated uh, and to fill it with so many unlikable characters. It takes a lot of courage to try to make a story that way.
0: I suppose I agree. <laughs> I, uh, For me, it comes down to you know, what were you trying to convey and how successfully did you achieve it? And if they were trying to convey that life grinds all of us down into a fine paste and that nothing anybody does matters, then yes, they achieved <laughs> that. That's not a story I particularly want to spend hours and hours watching.
1: Yeah, First Gundam had a lot of joy in it, and Zeta Gundam really doesn't.
0: Well, in First Gundam, you know, the, the system is against them, but they stand up to it, they fight it, they, you know, find community in spite of it, they look out for each other. Zeta feels much more, everyone is out for themselves, nobody successfully stands up against the man, uh... You know, death or adulthood comes for us all eventually, <laughs> and it's universally grim.
1: <laughs> yeah, Zeta is pretty brutal with its characters in the way that it treats them. It's One gets the impression that the people writing the story don't really like their characters.
0: Oh, I don't know about that. In the <laughs> So we read a couple of interviews, one with Tomino and one with Endo, and I think both of them expressed that they like... Camille, a lot.
1: <laughs> All right. Everybody likes Camille because he's such a good space boy. But in that Tomino interview we read, he talks about wanting to kill Amuro, wanting to make both Amuro and Char look pathetic.
0: I truly don't believe that's because he dislikes those characters. I think it probably comes from two places. One, they are adults and they are no longer useful for the story he wants to tell. And two, any future protagonist has to live in their shadow unless they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Like, unless he kills them off, they hang over every (laughs) Gundam series.
1: That's really the problem of first Gundam for Tomino. It's always going to hang over everything else he does.
0: I don't know if he was involved in any of the first non-UC stories, but may have been a big part of the reason to create alternate universes, because then you get out from under (laughs) these characters.
1: He wasn't, but it was. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally right about that.
0: Because your only other option is to jump so far into the future or so far into the past that those characters don't exist anymore. We got a last minute question that I'm going to insert here because I'm very curious about it and it fits. Uh, Do you feel like your perception of Zeta changed a lot watching through it again this time?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Last episode, I mentioned this feeling that the Zeta which lives in my head is, uh, not exactly the Zeta that lives on the screen. And the one in my head is actually much better. Um, and the thing is that after I said that I have received more messages from people (laughs) about that comment than anything else I've said on the podcast, bar none. Um, and they are all in agreement. I haven't received one message from one person saying I'm wrong about that. I know I've just jinxed myself. (laughs) I know you're all going to at me about this. Um, But I think that's true for a lot of us.
0: There's this interesting confluence. I saw one of the comments that you got that was in agreement about this, but between how old you were when you saw it and the way in which it was presented, because somebody mentioned it was sort of held up as like the best Gundam of all time, you know.
1: Yeah, Zeta has a ton of prestige within the Gundam community. And if you're a Gundam fan... Given how hard Zeta was to obtain for such a long time, like it it became accessible to most fans in the United States relatively late. Uh, So it was already built up. And by the time any young fan is going to be watching it, they're coming into it knowing, oh, this is Zeta, the good one, Mm -hmm. the prestige Gundam. And yeah, that's very true. The thing I kept feeling, especially getting further and further into Zeta, is this show really feels to me like a first draft. There are so many good ideas there. And so many of them get repeated over and over again through the course of the show because it feels like the writers and the directors are trying to work out how to do certain things. And it would, I think, benefit immensely from somebody coming through and Editing it a bit, giving them another shot at telling this same story, and that's convenient because Gundam is going to take a whole bunch more shots at telling this story. When future Gundam series look back and try to evoke Gundamness, they'll go back to First Gundam a little bit, but they're going to go back to Zeta a lot.
0: Does our way of watching the show sort of spoil your enjoyment in any way? And are you worried that that will happen to other faves?
1: <laughs> um, no. I still like Zeta, and I still like the version of Zeta that exists in my head. And in fact, I think watching the way we do in the podcast makes me appreciate the shows more than I would if it were just about enjoying them.
0: Looking at media the way we do, you have to kind of have in your head simultaneous ideas of, well, here are the things I don't like about it, or here are the problematic aspects of it. And oh, here are the bits I really enjoy that are really fun. My er example of this is the old Hollywood musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which is about kidnapping some wives in the old, like, pioneer west of America.
1: Depicted as a heartwarming musical for the whole family.
0: Right. And so, like, there's the kidnapping aspect. There's anything about pioneer America. You know, there's a lot of problems. (laughs) But the songs are great and the dancing is great and (laughs) it's like a very fun movie (laughs) and i think it's totally okay for someone to have those twin ideas in their head about a piece of media to acknowledge the ways in which it's problematic and also to enjoy it and have fun with it and it's my hope that if we run into those kinds of issues with gundams we can have that same experience
1: And I hope our listeners will have that experience too. When we point out the problems in Zeta, uh, when we point out where it could have been done better, we're not saying Zeta is bad or you shouldn't like it. Every piece of art is an imperfect work created by between one and countless people. And the relationship that the viewer or the reader or the listener has with each piece of art is unique and is as much about the person looking at the art as it is about the art. So I think it is important to understand the art, to understand what went into its creation, and to analyze what could have been done better. But none of that takes away from the raw, immediate experience of the art.
0: Those questions came from Lawrence M., who also went on to ask me, if I enjoyed the darker themes in Zeta, uh, and if I would like Gundam to continue with these dark themes or get lighter in the future.
1: What did you think of those dark themes?
0: I don't want it to sound as if I don't like dark themes at all. I thought First Gundam had a lot of really dark themes, and I quite enjoyed First Gundam. I don't like darkness for darkness's own sake. I don't like, oh, we're going to be all like gritty and like (laughs) just to prove how serious we are. Just like I wouldn't like cheerfulness necessarily for its own sake, I, for the most part, this is not always true, there are exceptions, for the most part I like media where everything there serves a purpose. (laughs) I liked some of the dark themes in Zeta and thought they were very appropriate. Uh, The degree to which life grinds us down as it turns us into adults, I think that's a feeling a lot of people can relate to. That's a very difficult fate to avoid, and nobody can avoid it completely. <laughs> I think that's a, a very interesting theme to talk about, but is quite dark. Uh, it seems impossible that Gundam would ever completely get away from dark themes, but my hope is not that it continues as dark or switches to light but that it plays with these two ideas and that it mixes them up and does different and interesting things with them, especially since we're going to be watching Gundam for several decades.
1: (laughs) There's a kind of emotional rhythm to a show, really to life. It's like a sine wave. You know, there are periods of levity and periods of grimness and for a show to work, it needs to have a good rhythm. When a show doesn't have that rhythm when it's all darkness, when it's always grim, or if the moments of levity are too few and far between or too weak, or they don't feel authentic, then it starts to feel monotonous.
0: So much of our enjoyment of the experience is in the contrasts, the very grim scene that's broken up by something funny.
1: (laughs) And First Gundam did this amazingly well. I think it's one of the strongest aspects of First Gundam is that it managed to combine these genuine moments of of happiness for the characters with the moments of true sadness. Would Miharu's death have hit hard if not for those sweet moments between her and Kai?
0: Yeah, if you're all dark all the time, the only place to go for contrast is to go darker and darker and darker. (laughs) Especially for television and for kids' television. There's only so far you can go.
1: If you want this condensed into like a 30-second experience, go back and watch, I think it's the first of the Jaburo episodes, when Amuro arrives and he's talking to Lieutenant Woody for the first time. And Lieutenant Woody is like, oh, Matilda and I were going to be married. And Amuro has this kind of daydream for a moment where he's imagining Woody and Matilda getting married with the whole white-based crew like throwing flowers. Um, and then it goes from that emotional high directly into him having a flashback of her death. You have to be lifted up so that you can then be smashed into the ground. That's Tomino baby. <laughs> And in Zeta, they do do this a little bit. One thing I noticed is if something terrible is going to happen to a colony at the end of an episode, there's a pretty good chance there's going to be depiction of the colony in the peaceful, pleasant status quo at the beginning of the episode.
0: I don't want to make it sound as if I hated Zeta because I absolutely didn't.
1: You would say it's your second favorite Gundam project so far.
0: Yes, I would. Um... <laughs> One of the things that I felt like First Gundam did very well is sort of grounded us in normal people. We had these semi-regular contacts with people who were not soldiers that made us care about what was happening to the world at large. With Zeta, soldiers feel very divorced from people who are not soldiers. It feels like a, a sort of thick curtain of separation between the two. We get very little exposure to normal people except as sort of background on some scenes. And it's not done in a way that makes us care very much about those people and what happens to them. And maybe that's part of the point. Maybe the, the sort of weird contrast between civilian life continuing as normal while this sort of small-scale war is going on is part of the point. But it does remove some possible emotional impact from the show.
1: Who was your favorite character?
0: Hmm. This is a little tricky, mostly because I don't think Zeta is hugely character focused. And so I don't feel as if I know many of them all that well. I think, as a character, my favorite is probably Emma, just in terms of her arc and her development and mm-hmm. characterization throughout the show. As a person, probably Fa.
1: <laughs> Justice for Fa.
0: Yeah. Well,. Our reactions to her as she goes from being sort of younger and less confident and less mature to being more confident in herself, more mature, more capable. In her, we see most of the growing up as positives. (laughs) We're not seeing as many of the negative aspects of that as we are in Camille. Um, We see her develop as a pilot. We see like Fa is a normal person. Who we get to see step up and help others and protect our hero and
1: yeah, I love Fa both as a person. I think she's great. I think she's one of the few like really good people in <laughs> Zeta. Like her and Camille, and Camille struggles. The other thing I really like about Fa is I think you can learn a lot about the conflict between the writers in Zeta by looking at Fa. As we were watching it, we pointed out that there's this whole plot line about Fa like, like wanting to be a mobile suit pilot, but then Bright decides she's unsuited for it because she's too concerned with protecting people. And so he takes her out of the pilot core, and then she manages to work her way back in. And basically that whole story uh, takes place in the episodes written by one of the two main writers. The other writer completely ignores that part of the story there's this whole thing with fa where for a span of like 10 episodes she's being written as the surrogate mother for shinta and kum but then in the last eight or so episodes they drop that plot line pretty much completely and shinta and kum almost disappear from the story you also get fa reacting to Rekua and emma and being a kind of sounding board for those two older women's notions of what it means to be a woman.
0: We get to see her taking in all of these opinions from all of these adults around her, and trying to process and decide for herself what she thinks is right.
1: And ultimately, it feels like Camille and Fa are the only two people in the show who are on each other's side unconditionally. Everybody else is there because their goals and ideologies happen to align. And if they didn't, then Rekua deserts, uh, Sirocco assassinates several of his Titans comrades, uh Yazan gets Jamaican killed. Like there's a lot of betrayal going mm-hmm. on in Zeta. Um even in Ayug Quattro and Bright and like they're all there because their goals and their ideology aligns with Ayugs but Camille and Fa are together and on the same side because they're family. As part of our preparation for this discussion, we both read two translations of interviews that were conducted between the end of Zeta Gundam and the beginning of Double Zeta. One was with Tomino himself, and one was with Endo Akinori, who was one of the two main writers on Zeta and would go on to be one of the two main writers on Double Zeta.
0: Is it the same writing team for Double Zeta?
1: Mostly, yes. Okay. In Zeta, the first half or so of the series had a whole bunch of different writers, like seven or eight different writers. And then the second half was just these two, Endo and Suzuki. Double Zeta is going to be Endo and Suzuki. And then in the latter half of the series, there will be one additional writer who comes in. These interviews were posted by Scanlations and by OldTypeNewType.tumblr.com. We'll include links in the show notes so that you can read them as well. I should also note Endo was responsible for writing the last two episodes of Zeta.
0: I did find it very interesting that Endo admits he would have liked to wrap things up more at the end of Zeta part one, and there just was not time.
1: Yeah, he talks about wanting to wrap up everything, but that, A, he couldn't do it because then it would be all fighting and no drama, and B, that Tomino told him that would be bad storytelling.
0: They both present some uh, pretty fascinating takes on Camille's ending. Mm-hmm. From Endo's perspective, which I think is much more uh, sort of utilitarian in a way, uh They knew they wanted a different protagonist for Zeta Part 2, and the only way they were going to be able to do that naturally would be to have Camille die or incapacitate it in some way so that he can no longer be the protagonist. And so they had to do something to him, and his uh, regression was it.
1: Whereas Tomino says, basically from the beginning, I knew that this was the kind of ending Camille was going to get um, because of the nature of the story. And of the nature of what Camille is trying to do. That Camille is forcing himself to exceed his own capabilities in order to obtain power.
0: And that that has to have consequences. But also that, that it all feels very natural to Camille's personality. And that that ambiguity in it that we identified. That it's hard to say whether this was a good or a bad thing to happen to Camille. Tomino feels that too. It has aspects both good and bad.
1: Tomino was asked a lot of questions about his treatment of the popular returning characters, like Amuro and Char, uh, cats, (laughs) the absent Sela, characters like that. And this is where I'm getting the idea that he uh, doesn't like his characters very much. I know you disagreed with me, but it does seem like Tomino really just wants to brutalize these old characters from First Gundam he talks about how cats ended up being the cats that we all know and that we all know and that that was Katz's reaction as a teenager against his parents against Frabo and Hayato and cats feeling like Hayato is too straightforward and Fra is too kind
0: but also that cats lacks self-restraint
1: well doesn't he ever
0: yeah but uh, Tomino identifies that as something common in the youth of today <laughs> He also says that Zeta is fundamentally a story about accepting reality, which is funny because when Haman yells like, people who cannot accept reality need to be eliminated, Camille fights against her.
1: Now, when Tomino talks about accepting reality here, we also have to remember that in the future, looking back on this, Tomino is going to describe this as a period of intense depression.
0: Yeah, if this is a show about accepting reality, Tomino has a very dark vision of what reality is.
1: Well, 1985, Tomino certainly did.
0: Several of Tomino and Endo's comments about women characters in the show uh, back up <laughs> the sexist interpretations uh, that seemed pretty obvious during the show. But I think this seeing their thoughts about it makes it very clear that these things were intentional. <laughs>
1: There's a quite short response in the Endo interview where he mentions that killing four off in episode 36 was his idea originally, and that Tomino would have preferred to keep her alive longer, which as a side note is fascinating because we as Gundam fans often fall into the facile and ultimately quite oversimplified idea of Tomino as the grand auteur director who is responsible for all things in Gundam, when really it's a team effort, and the writers under him are making a lot of these storytelling decisions that he is ultimately approving, but it's not all Tomino. But I digress. (laughs) Endo then goes on to say that he thinks this was a good idea because four then became a kind of springboard for Camille.
0: That is the word he uses, springboard. And Tomino talks about Emma and Rekoa and admits that these are sort of idealized versions of women that are meant to be gratifying to men.
1: Tomino takes a particular glee in killing off these female characters who are especially gratifying to men.
0: He also implies that Haman is villainous because she's sort of trying to emulate an idea of a strong male figure but doesn't actually know what that is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, though I was a little unclear what Tomino was actually trying to say there. Because the question he's asked specifies from Shar's point of view. Why is Haman acting the way she is? But then I don't actually know if he's answering from Shar's point of view or if he's answering from his own.
0: There's also something about the way he describes Haman as a villain that is very, like, villainous woman-coded. Mm-hmm. Showing up after the battle has already begun and trying to play both sides against each other. He describes her as a petty villain, which... uh. I don't know, given her success and the fact that she gets out of the first part of Zeta alive feels a bit patronizing.
1: Yeah, she's the most successful villain in Zeta.
0: And Endo says he would be happy to work with his woman writing partner, Suzuki, again. But also, what else is he going to say? Like, would he really put her on blast (laughs) in this interview? I don't think so. (laughs) It's entirely possible, even though we feel like there's a certain disconnect between their writing styles it's very possible they thought it worked well together and they, they thought the contrast between their writing styles was good.
1: Now, I have to preface what I'm about to say by saying that in English, it can be hard to find comprehensive credits for lesser known figures in the anime industry, including, for example, Suzuki Yumiko, who's the other writer. Um, but it sure looks like she left the anime industry shortly after writing for Zeta Gundam. Which suggests that she may not have enjoyed it that much, or may have found the industry kind of hostile to her for some reason.
0: I have to say, the uh, the interview led to a little bit of gloating internally on my part, because in Tomino's interview, he says that Char's struggles mirror his own.
1: Hmm. And did you say something about that? I don't remember.
0: <laughs> ho, 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 ho. Very attentive listeners will remember that I asked Tom if he thought that Char was a uh, stand-in for Tomino when Char says, it's young people like you who are going to save the world, not old fogies like me. (laughs) But it also goes even deeper when you think about it because Char thought that he was sort of done with what he set out to do in First Gundam. By the time we get to Zeta, This role is being foisted on him that everyone around him thinks is a natural extension of what he did, even though he saw his earlier actions as sort of completed and entire. Mm. Which is very much like Tomino finishes first Gundam. He's like, okay, that was a great show. I'm ready to move on. And everyone is like, no, naturally, we want you to keep making Gundams. And that isn't really what he wanted, but everyone around him is constantly pushing him to do it. (laughs) Mm hmm. And won't really let him forget about it and won't really let him not make Gundam.
1: (laughs) And when he tries to do something else by being Quattro-Bajina, everyone keeps coming up to him and being like, Hey, you're the guy from Gundam! Tobino uses so many pseudonyms, too. Like, whenever he's doing jobs on a production other than directing it, he has pseudonyms that he uses for that. Hey, somebody check if Aura Battler Dunbine was directed by (laughs) Quattro-Bajina.
0: I wonder sometimes if the pseudonym thing, I know it's common with a lot of artists, but I also know having a pen name or an artist name is quite common in Japanese arts. And for instance, the very famous haiku poet Matsuo Basho had like dozens of pen names.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I should note, uh, Tomino Yoshiyuki is already a pen name, though it's one of those where the name is pronounced the same, but his artist name uses a different set of kanji than his birth name does.
0: Okay, cool.
1: So in your opinion, what was the worst thing about Zeta?
0: I think I would have liked Zeta a lot better. (laughs) I'm couching this very carefully because this is a very personal preference thing. It's not universal by any stretch. But for me, if the narrative were a little tighter, which is to say, when a character is introduced, it's because they are going to serve a clear narrative purpose. When an event happens, it clearly moves the narrative forward in a way that's needed to reach the climax of the thing. Basically, all the parts of the story have a purpose and contribute to the ongoing motion of the narrative. Which is not a thing I think Zeta did consistently and contributed to some of my frustrations with the show. What about you? Ooh. (laughs) Right, it's not just Nina's opinions about Zeta.
1: The thing I would most want to improve about Zeta is ultimately the pacing. I actually think the pacing is really good up through, let's say, episode nine. But after that, we get the Earth arc, which is just two or three episodes too long. It feels stretched out it feels bloated then they go back up into space and there's a solid 10 or 15 episodes of just kind of meandering around new characters get introduced established characters get shuffled off we go through the rigmarole of meeting and understanding a new a new character and learning about a new plot line and then it just sort of vanishes into the ether um granada is threatened and then saved half a dozen times maybe more And then they get into the final stretch and everything is rushed. It feels like there are missing episodes. Like they hadn't figured out how they were going to end it until they were ending it. Now, what was your favorite thing about Zeta?
0: This is really more than one thing, but I thought the character and mobile suit design was very interesting. Really enjoyed that. And some of the fights were incredible. Just really well animated, well choreographed.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um... We shouldn't overlook just how good Zeta looks basically the whole way through. Yeah, there are episodes where the faces get a bit wonky. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's hand-drawn animation from the mid-1980s, and they made 50 episodes of this thing in the course of a year. So yeah, it's not always going to be perfect, but it is remarkably good-looking and often, usually, very well-directed. So now I need to come up with something other than that.
0: You can like the same things (laughs) that I like. It's allowed.
1: So I think my absolute favorite thing about Zeta, if you look at the Zeta Gundam fandom, you will find tons of people who are just absolutely devoted to these characters who in the show get very little screen time, uh, very little time to develop. And yet the characters are so powerful the visual design is so good the voice acting is so good the characterization even though there's so little of it is so evocative that it creates these characters who live in our heads and who are who are so much more than the sum of their actual depictions
0: classically Based on a whole one season that we've completed so far, this is the point at which I make predictions about what will happen next.
1: I'd also like to hear what you want to happen next, even if you don't expect it.
0: I mean, given that I already know it's basically a continuation of this show, I expect similar grimness. I expect a new space-noid protagonist who is a new type. Haman and Axis are still around we could potentially see a new faction emerge, a more clear sort of allied space faction. Because Aug hasn't really felt like they represent all of the space-noids. It's felt like they've represent the moon and some business interests. <laughs> uh, so maybe we'll see sort of clearer alliances playing out among all the different colonies. I am curious whether... We've sort of seen the beginning of the end of the Federation, or if they are going to recede into becoming a purely Earth government and give up whatever sort of control they have over space. Because the defeat of the Titans seems to make clear that they cannot maintain that control. There's too much resistance to it. There's no way for them to to keep hold of the colonies so does that mean they're over completely or does that mean they sort of retrench around Earth and they're like, fine, forget you, space noids. Hmm. I'd like to see a little more hope I mean, Ayug's defeat of the Titans, Ayug's ability to stand up to all of the force of Axis Xeon, who we've seen time and again, they keep hammering home how materially strong Axis Xeon is. This would seem to indicate that you know, self-government for space-noids is possible, is an attainable goal, you know, a step in the direction of building the world that they want. And that ought to be a hopeful thing, that ought to be something positive, even if there are those sort of oligarch elements like Wang Lee, like Melanie Hugh Carbine, who seem to exercise outsized control because of their access to funds and capital. I'd like to see the less problematic sexist stuff. I don't think I'm going to get it. Uh, and I'd like to see a, a smaller cast and a tighter narrative. And I don't really think I'm going to get that either. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much of a straight continuation from the last show for me to expect such a change in the method of storytelling.
1: Okay. Now... We didn't actually have that many surviving characters at the end there, and you've already made predictions for a couple of them, like Haman. What do you think comes next for, let's say, Bright?
0: I'm sad to say this, but I think fundamentally Bright is a reformist and thinks that they need to like fix the Federation, but the Federation is still the sort of government they should have. I think Bright winds up on the wrong side of history.
1: How about Amuro?
0: Amuro's too tied to Earth at this point. He's also compromised.
1: Okay, what about Hayato? You forgot for a second that he was even a character, didn't you?
0: No, I'm thinking thoughtfully about this. Frankly, I think Hayato stays Hayato. I think Hayato continues to be involved in whatever Karaba becomes, which to me looks like Opposition party, Earth government. I don't think Hayato is the sort of person who, on finding out that Katz has died, falls into a deep depression and checks out of the whole thing. I don't think that's Hayato's way. I think Hayato knew the risks when cats first joined up. Mm-hmm. But Karaba is by its nature less interesting to us because it's an on-Earth oppositional force and we are primarily concerned with what's happening in space.
1: All right. What about Camille and Fa? You've already sort of had it telegraphed to you that Camille is not going to be the main character in Double Zeta.
0: Well, it sort of depends on whether Camille's regression is temporary or not. It depends on is this a permanent state that he's stuck in or is he now going to like age as normal from whatever point he's been put in? Uh, And we don't know those things, I suppose. In the darkest imaginings, he is a child forever and has to be cared for. In the somewhat happier imaginings, this event actually enables him to go live a normal life now, without carrying all the war trauma that everybody else has to carry. I kind of suspect that Fa stays a soldier? I don't know how reasonable an expectation that is, but based on her character progression towards the end of the show, that feels the most natural that she would stay on and continue fighting for space independence. However, they have at times done unnatural things with Fa, so who knows? <laughs> uh,
1: this is why we always say justice for Fa, because no character has been batted around so much by the writers as Fa.
0: It sort of works, though, because they don't seem to know quite what they want her to be, but she doesn't quite know what she wants to be. Cause she's such a young woman, she's still sort of figuring it out.
1: Alright, finally, everybody's favorite. What happens to Quattro Begina?
0: He didn't kill Haman, he has to keep fighting.
1: Thank you for joining us for this wrap-up episode. Next time on Mobile Suit Breakdown, we'll return for our coverage of Double Zeta, episode 3.0.
0: If you sent us a Zeta question and we didn't address it, and do not fear. We do have those uh, and we may put them to use later. There's some good stuff in there, but we have already recorded two hours of uh, talkback and Q&A. So this episode is done.
1: It was two and a half
0: hours.
1: (laughs) Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, gundampodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.
0: We'll Meet Again. It's the name of a old timey song.
1: Is It by Tom Petty?
0: No. Sorry.
1: Well, then it's off theme.
0: We've, we've also had, um, other...
1: It's, it's true.
0: I Believe I Am Ready.
1: Wonderful.
0: Uh, the Bolanox Amon have an extra arm? No. Or the... You don't think he could just, like, dis- become a Berber? My position is that Zayla... Zale- <laughs> Zela.
1: Remember, Tomino really did not want to make another Guntum. He just didn't. Uh, But in the span of time between first Gundam and Zeta Gundam, he never quite managed to recapture that fire, and so he was under a bit of pressure from the studio to return to his greatest success and make another Gundam. Interestingly, I recently read that part of the impetus behind making a second Gundam was that the toy company sponsor for one of Bandai's previous projects, Heavy Metal Elgheim, had gone bankrupt and left the show with no sponsor. They were desperate, they panicked, they managed to find a replacement in toy company Bandai, but Bandai had a requirement they would sponsor Elgheim, but only if Sunrise made another Gundam for them.
0: I wonder if this happened at other points in Tomino's career where he would make a commercially popular show so that he could make a passion project.
1: Hmm. finally uh not finally finally but finally about zeta um.
0: so we just got a new question that's pretty good but we could talk about it when we talk about uh, our feelings about zeta as a whole personally
1: and we can mention that we got this as we were recording the other answers yes
0: And I think that's it for that section.
1: Yes, it is. Woohoo! Yay!
0: Momosuit Breakdown is made possible by the support of a two, three, by
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Or you pull a Star Wars and, like, oh, Luke disappeared. Nobody knows where he is. He's hiding out someplace. You know? Mm hmm. There's a certain amount of mental gymnastics involved in liking media of any kind. Uh,
1: So mature and adult. Sorry, did I throw you off your game?
0: No, it's fine. I just like what I want is irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also not going to get it. So, uh...